Magnus Podcast, episode 16. This is part one of Love and Dominion with Dr. Patrick Downey. Hey, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. So glad you found <coughs> found. Excuse me, what is going around? I hear there's some sort of bug that started on the other side of the world and uh, slowly infected the United States and like slowing down the economy, destroying lives, taking lives. I can't remember the name of the bug that's been uh, affecting us. It's like a virus. Starts with a C. CEO. Yes, college. It's it's college. Uh, ruining lives everywhere in, in uh, the United States and beyond uh, for way too long. And at the Albertus Magnus Institute, we have discovered the vaccine for this virus. It's the Magnus Fellowship. You can learn more about it at magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship. But in a nutshell, here it is. We've assembled a team of senior fellows. These senior fellows are going to be teaching online live interactive classes, not uh, video recordings that you get to watch, uh, but actually interactive through HD video conferencing. And you're going to be communicating with your other teachers. You're going to be communicating with your other students, the fellows. That's going to be you. And you're going to be getting the best education that money can buy, except for one thing, money isn't buying it because it's completely free, completely free. I know that sounds crazy. I know, but it's free. It really is. There's no catch. Okay. And so we've basically identified this sort of phase one of the Albertus Magnus Institute project, identify and unite the few remaining institutions of higher education in this country that are doing a great job of educating humans and promote those, promote those and encourage everybody who can to attend one of those institutions, brick and mortar in person, get a great education. However, if you're somebody who can't attend one of those great institutions, brick and mortar and get a great education, can't afford it, you're not, you know, an undergraduate age, you got a family, whatever, doesn't matter. Anybody can uh, come to the Albertus Magnus Institute and apply for the fellowship and take courses with some of these institutions' greatest faculty members. Okay, so we've actually gone out and poached the greatest faculty in the world. And don't worry, it's all on the up and up. The teachers that are teaching for us are still teaching for these great institutions. They're just moonlighting for us. They're moonlighting for you. And they're going to be teaching the curriculum uh, that makes a man free. See previous podcast episode for you. And it is completely free. And the funny thing about this college system, right, is that so many people do it just to get the diploma. They do it just to get the sheepskin. And so it's not about the learning. It's not about studying in a way that's an end in itself, but just getting this degree because you got to get this job. Turns out you just got to get a bunch of debt. You got to go into, uh, you know, this lifetime of paying off your debt. And it's a failing system. So many people are waking up to it, but it's not about the 
degree with the Albertus Magnus Institute. In fact, we are proudly unaccredited. We always will be. And we sort of flip the system on its head so that as soon as you sign up, as soon as you apply for the Magnus Fellowship, your application is processed. The first thing we do is send you the sheepskin. You get a beautiful certificate of fellowship that means absolutely nothing. You get to hang it up on your wall. It can remind you of your fellowship. You can show it to your friends. Whatever you want to do with it, it is beautiful. And we do send it to you right off the bat. So that's out of the way. And everything after that is just beautiful learning for learning's sake. And that's how we save the world. So join us at magnusinstitute.org slash fellowship. It really is revolutionary what we're doing because we're trying to revolt against this broken system of soft enslavement that has become college, unfortunately. Okay. And there is, we got the secret sauce. We've got the, uh, the vaccination to this virus. It's the Magnus Fellowship and you can be a part of it. Check it out. MagnusInstitute.org slash fellowship. Okay. I got to slow down. I'm getting excited about this. It is a very exciting thing, but the way these classes will work, and you see the whole curriculum on the website, but uh, you're going to be taking these classes live and interactive. So actually talking with your professors, talking with fellow students in real time. You're going to meet once a week for about two hours per week at a time that is mutually agreeable to your professor and a small class, uh, maybe 20 people max in the class. 24 if we stretch it, okay? But you're going to be taking these classes over an eight-week period. If you can't make it live, that's fine. You can actually watch a recording later that we do encourage your live participation. So it's going to be great with these classes themselves, about two hours long, and they're going to be split between about half lecture, okay, interactive lecture, and half seminar. That is a text-based discussion gently led by a senior fellow. Okay. And that's going to be combined. So you're not only learning from a text, but you're being guided by a master in the room. So within the next few weeks on our website at magnusinstitute.org, we're going to have a full list of senior fellows debuted to the public. And when you see those, you're going to say, okay, wow, this is for real. And I want to be a part of it. Which is why I'm encouraging you to apply now for the fellowship before, uh, things get, uh, you know, a little, a little log jammed in the system. We're going to try our best to process them, but you are essentially uh, getting in on the ground floor at this point. If you apply for the Magnus Fellowship, it's always going to be free. It's always going to be worth doing. So do it. And one more note before we get into this discussion today, uh, I don't like the sound of my voice any more than you do. And you're in luck because as soon as we do launch classes, online live interactive classes, the majority of this podcast is not going to be uh, you know, my interviews or anything like that. It's actually going to be the classes themselves, or at least the lecture portions thereof, uh, leaked essentially to the public for free via podcast. And so, of course, you get a benefit from being live in the classes, being a student, getting the certificate of fellowship. You do that by applying on the website, and it's always going to be free. But the uh, podcast is going to take a turn in the coming weeks to basically be featuring these uh, lectures. Okay, so an example of what that might sound like we are uh, treated to today by Patrick Downey. Uh, He has a degree from Harvard, a doctorate from Harvard, a degree from Boston College as well, in spite of those 
those two degrees, he's still able to think pretty well. And he's going to be leading a small group of undergraduate students. So thanks very much to those uh, six or seven students in this class from St. Mary's College of California, basically serving us with a prototypical version of what you might hear in one of these classes. This, this is a something like a theological elective or a philosophical elective course from our curriculum on, uh, it's a, a theological and philosophical survey through scripture, through um, the literary tradition, through the ancient Greeks on this notion of love and dominion. So I'm going to be releasing this here in uh, different sections, maybe one section at a time, give you a 30-minute chunk at a time uh, over the course of the next few weeks. So without further ado, please enjoy this uh, seminar that you're going to be listening into, this lecture by Professor Patrick Downey. And of course, Patrick Downey is going to be and is a senior fellow at the Albertus Magnus Institute. So if you love this, you're going to be able to take the real thing live with the man himself as soon as we launch. So without further ado, here is Patrick Downey on Love and Dominion. Enjoy. Uh, Genesis, in terms of love and marriage, um, the thing to keep in mind is we've been doing Love and the Beloved from, uh, from uh, Aristotle and Sappho and Symposium by Plato. So, and then we could add that reading from Aristotle that God is the beloved and God is the most beautiful thing, moves everything else without being moved. Uh, but here, at the beginning of Genesis, you're seeing a reversal of that. Because in Aristotle, the beloved can move everything around it. Everything besides God is the lover, but it can't account for where the lover comes from. The lover seems to be coterminous with God. There's the beloved, and then there's a lover, and take those together, you have the cosmos. Okay, so there's no creation in Aristotle. That's just the eternal relationship of reality, lover being moved by the beloved. But now in Genesis, when you have a beginning, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Why does God create the earth? You've got to ask why, and it's a contingent move. And it's the contingent move of why does God make this world he doesn't have to make? He makes it because he loves it. There can be no other explanation. He's got to do it out of this superabundance of love. So that makes God's creation here, in one sense, the beloved that he brings into existence. Uh, but once it's created, then everything in creation will respond to God as lover to beloved. And that's what we're ordered to do, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind. But the first move is the act of God's love to create the world out of nothing. So there you're seeing the shift from uh, back to God being the lover to his creation, that he makes the beloved, and he makes it good when he sees it's good and then very good. In one sense, he's making it and seeing the beauty of his beloved, his beloved creation. And then he loves it by bringing it into existence. How do you, how, how do you know that it's, it's love just because it's not necessary? I don't know. You yeah. can jump from mm -hmm. it, from something not being necessary to God you know, loving from Genesis. Because if the world already existed, it would be the beloved that God then loves, the way God already exists. So we would love God. That's Aristotle. Uh, but for him to create the world, he doesn't have any other reason to do it. He's not pulled. He doesn't have any cause to do it. There's not some other reason why he has to create it. So just this doing it for it free, so to speak, would be the free act of God loving the world. Okay, so doing something self-initiating, doing yeah. something because it's free is 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 love. 
it, if it's not in response to the beloved. So by having in the beginning God created, so then you have God and then you have the heavens and earth. Well, what initiates that? There's no external reason. It's just out of some inner status of God. Um, later on, that'll be the tradition. John will say God is love. So it's very nature seems to be love. So that superabundant moving into creation for no reason other than you want to is the act of God's love, his creative love for his world. And so you can't you can't know it from some higher viewpoint the way we can know lover and beloved. We can understand why a lover is moved by the beloved in Aristotelian terms, but why God creates the world, that seems to be an expression of love. And then the whole biblical story that starts within the beginning, God created the heavens and earth, is going to be a love story of God loving this world that he created, even though he commands it always to love him. So he's, why can we love God? Because he first loved us. He first loved us by creating us. So then we respond to him as lover and beloved. So Aristotle would see the world. He wouldn't know it's created. He'd say, oh, we all want to respond to God, the unmoved mover. But that just seems to be eternally the case. Whereas here we see that's the situation because God's initiator at first. So he's the initiator of love. He starts everything going because of his love, his creative love. And then that goes back to Aristotle when he says, is it better to be the beloved or the lover? And he says, it's better to be the lover because the lover pours themselves out into the object of their love, the way a mother pours herself out into the child, and also the way a, a poet and a, a craftsman pours himself out into the product. So then that seems to be why God creates the world. He's pouring himself out into this world, and him loving the world sees his ultimate act of creativity, the same way a poet and a craftsman is creative. And they, they care, and they concern themselves with their object, the way a mother concerns themselves with the, the child just because they love it. And that seems to be the fulfillment of a human being to be a lover. Well, God is self-contained, but he seems to be super abundant by fulfilling himself by creating, to express what's already within him, you could say. Also in the Old Testament, it seems like we, we are, humans don't learn how to become, uh, become lovers. Like we're, we're being treated as a beloved by God, mm -hmm. but then... Uh, you know, God is uh, is sending the love to um, uh, humans, but then is re responding by need like needing love back for them. But mm -hmm. there's like a there's a distance in the in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. It seems like. Tell me more. What do you mean by like that? distance? Yeah, there's a there is like we can't learn how to become lovers to God because mm -hmm. there's, there's constantly a, like a rift between God and humanity. In oh, the yeah. Testament. Yeah. Since the fall. Right. Since the fall. Yeah. Um, right. But I'm wondering if like, is it because God is the lover first that like we're learning how to be the beloved because that's how we're being treated, but we don't necessarily know how to imitate God and be the lover back to him. Yeah. But jumping ahead, but essentially the love story is that we've, we have to first become the beloved. We're Scarlet, we're the Scarlet woman. Read that in Isaiah. We're the scarlet woman, though your sins be as scarlet, God says, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as a scarlet, I shall make them white as snow. So to make us white as snow is to make us the beautiful beloved, the virginal bride. So he transforms us into that bride, and now we can love him back properly. Once we first recognize that we are the beloved, gratuitously, he loves us, makes us beautiful. Now we are freely able to love him. 
the way we can't love him before because once us we're guilty, we're manipulating, we're, we're in it for ourselves, but now we can freely love God the way he commands us to. We, he commands us to love the Lord your God, but we're unable to until in the Gospels he makes us new, virginal, born again, and then we can love God back. So he loves us so we can love him fully. So we can't be fulfilled as lovers of God until he first loves us. But that's you know where the story is going. But first, you got to see what happens with the scarlet. Where's the scarlet come from? Okay, so in, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So that's the first thing. So let's then go to the male and female uh, in one twenty six. Then God said, "Let us make man in our image, after our likeness." And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves. Okay, so relative to what we did before in the symposium and other things, um, where do you see this idea of, uh, well, this way, is this more like Aristophanes that you're loving to try to get your other half together because you've been split apart? Or is this more like the Socratic idea that love would be giving birth in the vision of the beautiful? What is it you think is going on here between man and woman in terms of the image of God? Well, it would be more like Socrates in that God created man in his own image. Um, I mean, that would that would make man greater than other things because it's not like the rest of the heavens and earth he created in his own image. It was just man that he made that way. So I think it'd be more like Socrates' uh, giving birth in the vision of the beautiful. Mm-hmm. Where do you see giving birth here? Um, well, I guess it's more creation than birth, but... Um, but there is the be fruitful and multiply. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. So if you look at temporally, you're made in the image of God. So there you have an us. Like in Aristophanes, you have an us. You're trying to bring the us into one. Male and female would be an us bring to one. So that's like Aristophanes. But then giving birth in the vision of the beautiful would be be fruitful and multiply. But then what's the vision of the beautiful? You could, just like downstream, you give birth to children. You give birth to children because you see the image you're made in, male and female. So it's as though seeing that image of the beautiful, then you give birth to children in that. And so then transcendently you're united to the future as well. But it's also a unity. But it's, but notice Aristophanes, it's a horizontal thing. You're just trying to get to your other half and you grab each other and it ends. No more story. But giving birth in the vision of the beautiful, you have a story. You give birth to more and more beautiful children. Well, because it's transcendent. Well, in the Christian account, you have a transcendent image. God creates you. But then you have the temporal image of kids in the future. But then you also have the horizontal image of a man or woman seen to be, we didn't read this yet. Yeah, uh, yeah, right here, that the two are one flesh. So the two are one flesh is the Aristophanes element. You're trying to make that the two one, but you're also transcendently related to God and then uh, horizontally related to the future. So it brings to bear all the different images of male and female from from Plato. Would you technically say that man gave birth to woman? 
like you know because it came from a man's ribs and things like that is that kind of how you would like uh, sequentially not, yeah. say that or would you still put it as like yeah that's not birth it, so the rib wouldn't be birth but she will give birth to children so but it's so it's one flesh but not the way the mother's one flesh with the child gotcha. so that the idea of coming out of her out of his rib mm. which will be somewhat tied in later when we get to Jesus there's a way that the bride is coming out of his very body uh, but not necessarily that Jesus is giving birth to anybody but we're all coming out of his body itself oh, but there also is the marriage and the church mm-hmm. so, so there is like a nuance there yeah so it's, yeah. so birth and uh, is not quite the same as uh, being part of the same body coming out of the body interesting yeah. okay But they both are united in the sense that man and woman is, uh, by their very nature, they should be one flesh. That they aren't two people, autonomous on their own, separated by the skin, and then they come together. They're not separated. Even though they have bodies, their bodies aren't private. So that that's going to happen in the sequel, in the fall. You fall into a private body, an unshareable body. We assume our bodies are unshareable, but the story here seems to be that Male and female, the two are one flesh, is that you have a body, but your skin doesn't cut you off from another body, which is clearly the case in reproduction. That's the one cell you have that by its nature has to unite with another cell to be fully a human. So there you're actually seeing the true reality of male and female in the the fertilized egg. But here in creation, that seems to be our first starting point. Two bodies, but we're really one. And that happens in reproduction. Uh, but in the fall, though, you become isolated with your flesh. That's the shame, the embarrassment you have. They're embarrassed because they fall into a private body, an unshareable body. And that's why they make themselves aprons out of leaves. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. Because to go to the second story, the, they were naked and unashamed, but then their eyes are opened and they cover themselves so they become ashamed. Well, they're ashamed not because they were shameful before, but they become ashamed of now for the first time becoming private, having a private knowledge of good and evil, a private body. They're ashamed of this because they're cut off from one another. The veil would make it appear as though they can be with one another without this privacy. And so they cover their nakedness with the vegetation but the problem is privacy is a violent thing, so God has to cover them with animal skins. So he's got to shed blood to do it. So there, there's something to fall into privacy, is to fall into a kind of a violent relationship between the man and the woman and their children as well. Uh, which we'll see later. Um, what? Well, I'll ask you this. What is, what is the later... We're later going to see a covenant, a marriage covenant between Abraham and God. What's the sign of that covenant? Your children will be more numerous than the stars. Or Abraham's uh, that's the covenant, but what's the sign of the covenant? Circumcision. Circumcision. Oh. Circumcision, yeah. Circumcision, what a strange thing. <clears throat> the man's private parts has to be cut and shed blood. So that goes back to the private parts of Adam and Eve. They hide their pudenda, their shameful private parts, because it's become private for the first time. Before, they were unashamed because they weren't private parts. They were they were designed to be united. They weren't mine or thine. They were ours. But now they became my private parts, your private parts. And then they had to cover the violence of that by the animal skins. 
But now with circumcision, you circumcise that because you're revealing that it is your privacy is a violent source of problems between a man and a woman, that they are going to, we'll see later, fall into uh, domination and the dominion. But then later on, the promise in the future is God, he says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn in Deuteronomy. So that circumcision of the heart is there's no real bloodshed, but that's really the problem is your heart has become private. Just as your body became private, your heart became private. So Adam's heart beats for some things, Eve's beat for others. They don't beat for what God's heart wants. So everybody's heart is really private. That's a real source. It's not your genitalia. But the genitalia is the outward manifestation of this because you should be united with one heart just as your one body. So you have to circumcise your heart before you can have a shareable body in the future. And we'll say that's that's why the covenant of marriage is the foretaste of that. In the, in the covenant of marriage, you're getting this idea the man and the woman can become one flesh again, and their passion, their heart can be beating for, for God himself, and they can all be united in what they love. They can have a common love. And that's where the story's going. That'll be the fulfillment of the promise. You can have a circumcised heart, and you taste that in, in marriage. Okay, so let's uh, can jump ahead, but uh, so let's 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 deal with uh, this thing we got from Aristotle. Why would the man be aristocratic? Or as Aristotle says, why would the man have the same reason as woman, same nature, but he, she lacks authority? Well, that's the detail we haven't pointed out here. The very image of God is so God created man in His own image. Uh, and he gave them dominion over the animals. So there seems to be a relationship of the man and the woman that has dominion built into it. So just as they have dominion over animals, the implication here, which is borne out in, this, in the more detailed account of creation, is the man has dominion rule over the woman. Just as the man and woman together has dominion over the animals, and God has dominion over humanity. Dominion just means rule. But then later, when the woman eats, her eyes are open, and it says, and the, your desire shall be for the man, and he shall rule over you. So she seems to fall into a rule that is rule not for her benefit, uh, but rule for his benefit. And so this, so there's still dominion there, but it's corrupt dominion. It's not ruling for the benefit of the ruled. But, but this relationship of a man and the woman seems to be political by its very nature. It has... It has rule built into it. And so that's why I think Aristotle brings it out, that bring a man and a woman together, how are they going to relate? Well, they have to relate politically. There has to be a ruler and ruled. You can't have a democracy of two people and decide anything. So there has to be ruler and ruled. Who's going to rule? The man's going to rule. Just as all of humanity is ruled by God, all of humanity rules over animals within humanity because it's male and female, you have rule between the man and the woman. The man rules the woman, but just as early on, humans rule animals, but they don't eat them. They could, they're only allowed to eat from the tree, but they can't kill animals, which means you can't prey upon animals. Uh, here, you can't. The the man has to rule for the over the woman, but he can't prey upon her. He has to nurture the way you nurture your your dog or your cat, rather than eating your dog or your cat. But it falls into a way where he not literally, but psychologically, is going to want to prey upon the woman because he has the authority to do so. So she's going to be cursed by suffering the rule, misrule of the man. But she will desire that very thing, so she can't avoid it. 
So all the complications between men and women is comes from the woman suffering the role of the man, but she can't get free of that role. He will rule willy-nilly. So you fast forward to feminism. What's feminism trying to do? It's trying to get rid of rule entirely. Equalities to eliminate rule. As though you, you could have no rule. But to have no rule is just to have some sort of rule going on. So, But why is the desire to get rid of rule? Because men are badly ruling over women. So equality. When you say the the well, I mean that could be like what they say their goal is. But what, subsequently, would you say that it's actually woman wanting that rule over men? Is well, that's that's the like in Chaucer's the wife of Bastail. Mm-hmm. What do women want? That's the question, and the answer is well, women want to rule. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, but even in that story, when women rule, they've got to rule covertly. That's, mm-hmm. that's oh, the, that. Yeah. We'll get to that when we get to Rousseau because Rousseau. Same argument is going, women actually rule, but they can't rule overtly, so they have to secretly rule. The way they secretly rule is through the, the erotic desires of the man. Yeah. So in the wife of Bastail, I'll give you what, what you desire, uh, but I will rule over you. And the way I rule over you is because your passions make you vulnerable to the woman. She has power over the man because she has what he wants sexually. Mm, yeah. So, But she can't do that overtly because overt rule would be that you have power to kill and force and coerce somebody, but the woman will actually get all that power, but not through powerful coercion and force, but through uh, passion and desire. So that, yeah, that, so that would be the thing. Yeah, what do women want? They want, they want to overcome the man's rule by secretly ruling through who is through his weakness. So that's the way, so to speak, she gets her revenge upon the man by ruling him through his passions and his weakness. There's a section in your thesis book. <laughs> <laughs> So is that what women will have to rule? (laughs) (laughs) But even if they want rule, is it it really to rule or is it to free yourself from bad rule? Wasn't feminism more like the general will in Rousseau where the we is the I and the I is the we and it's not any particular woman, it's kind of just... Right. Yeah, but even in Rousseau, when you try to get rid of rule with the general will, you still rule yourself till you still have to oppress oneself. You force yourself to be free. Force yourself to be free, exactly. So that means you're just displacing this force somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So likewise, if the woman is trying to get rid of rule, let's have equality, she displaces her force somewhere else. Where does she displace her force? Violence, abortion, and birth control. So, so the way a woman can be equal to a man is she's got to overcome her vulnerability of being a, a, a mother. So if one no longer, it, one can have sex, but it'd be a, a wife or a mistress or anything else, but you're not a mother. If you can control that through abortion, then by, so to speak, oppressing oneself, to use Rousseau's language, in one's own body, you're not going to be oppressed by a man. A man can't oppress me because I oppress myself first, which is Rousseau's solution for equality. If everybody oppresses themselves, no any no other person can oppress you. So a woman oppresses her own body through abortion and birth control, no man can oppress her body anymore. And is that how she gains some sort of authority in the political sphere because she's made herself a murderer like the man? I, I think so, yeah. So then that coercive violence comes in, yeah. So she gets to shed the blood. Or she should be, her body should be bleeding, which is a sign of her fertility, but there's a threat that she now could shed blood, but that gives her that power to rule like a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's still trying to overcome that curse 
of uh, the man ruling badly. If she was ruled well by the man, then then they would have that two or one flesh again. So the whole biblical story is uh, every ironically it's going to be on the side of the woman. The woman has every all humanity has to be on the side of the woman. They want they need to be like Mary. And that this man will rule properly. Jesus will be the ruler that rules over his bride. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't listen to the voice of his wife, his body. By not listening to the voice of his wife, he redeems his wife. And so everybody has to be redeemed by this man who doesn't shed blood, but his blood is shed. So that, that restores general, genuine rule. That's why all marriages are sacramental, because you're sacramentally partaking in um, Christ's ruling properly his bride and now we can partake in a genuine marriage relationship without the man secretly you know ruling this poor woman that desires the guy that's screwing her over so you're so you really have a good marriage to christ you may not have a good marriage concretely but you're participating in in the true good marriage but because it's a shareable marriage you can everybody can share in this marriage same way that adam and eve the two are one flesh all flesh can be united in christ's marriage you overcome the private body with this. <clears throat> so that's the importance of the the whole thing has to do with sharing. So Aristophanes is kind of lurking there, coming together with the other half. But for Aristophanes, he says, this is the wound of our nature. The lovers come together because they have a wound in their nature. They're trying to heal it. So you grab the other half. You're trying to solve the wound. But then the gods may cut you in half again. So you have kind of a technological solution to the wound. That's what romance is. Romance is just trying to get rid of that pain you have because somehow you feel defective, cut in half. Well, the Bible says, oh, no, that's because of sin. Sin is really what happened. That's why you're cut in half. But you can't just come together with the other half and solve it. You've got to transcend back to God to overcome the wound of your nature. But there's definitely a fact that the wound is clear. There's something in the passion of lovers that they, it's passion, you're suffering. So you're suffering in this love because something's, you know something's wrong. It's not just blissful, super abundance love. It's this kind of wounded, kind of madness between the man and the woman because something's gone wrong. And, and marriage is viewed as the enemy of passion, but marriage is kind of like the first taste of the real solution to that madness. Marriage is where you see towards the future how you'll overcome that wound. And then the children that come from marriage are the sign that the future in this new life will be the future. It will be where it's going. So again, that brings in the Socratic rather than just the Aristophanes element of love. Okay, any other questions on this? We've gone over this before, but the one through three. Uh, going back to one thing that you just said, how does... Um uh, producing, how does man and wife producing children relate to Socrates' um, idea of love? Because uh, Aristophanes, you're just trying to, there's no children, you're just trying to, you're just lovers and you're done. It'd be like someone in their mistress. You don't, it's not your wife, it's your mistress. You're just trying to satisfy some passion. But, uh, but Aristophanes, I mean, but Socrates in his account says, oh no, it's uh, Eros is giving birth in the vision of the beautiful. So it's all focused now. In one sense, you, you become the woman. Even if you're the lover, you're trying to give birth. That's why Diotima is the one telling the story. A woman's telling the story. Because you have to see yourself more as a womb than a man who's just aroused. Because even when you're arousal, it's you trying to give birth in your arousal. 
And then the, the thing you thought you wanted the beloved is, is the vision, but the vision is important just because it elicits your uh, birth pangs. So birth is really what you're after. Or as he says, you're, you're striving for immortality. And so, so when a man and woman comes together, are they just trying to heal the wound of their nature? Or are they trying to become immortal? Well, when you have a creator God, becoming immortal is getting back in touch with the God who created you. That you turn your back on. So in one sense, children, they lead to the future, but they also transcend and lead to where you came from, the God that made you. It's, it's how you're becoming more like God, but you're doing it in time and space. What, so you live on through the blood of your children. What about for people who are celibate? Who, I mean, that must be a path for them to transcend and to encounter God without progeny. So yeah. are, are progeny mm-hmm. necessary? Well, not, that that would be progeny, but not necessarily a physical oh, progeny. Oh, spiritual progeny. Right, yeah. That's, so that's why you're still man and woman mm-hmm. when you're religious. And you're always the, the priests or husbands and nuns or brides. Mm-hmm. And you're giving birth to spiritual children. And you can multiply those ad infinitum. And so so it's 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 the same principle. And, and they have to understand themselves relative to physical procreation rather than physical procreation being just a, a form of uh, spiritual procreation. Mm-hmm. The physical thing, the body is the key thing. Initially, the man and the woman were bodily, one flesh. Mm-hmm. So there's a concrete orientation towards the body. So one's not trying to be a Gnostic and free oneself from the body. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so other questions about one through three? Uh, there seem to be, uh, like, the word, like, woman and wife seem to be just interchanged mm-hmm. within one through three of Genesis. Yeah. When he was talking about Eve and then, like, husband and man with mm-hmm. Adam. Uh, is, is it just that, like, there didn't seem to be any marriage ceremony, but they're mm-hmm. just one flesh, so they're man and wife? Yeah, the husband and wife. Well, they're, they're one flesh. The woman is taken out of the man. That's the woman. Yeah. Um, but it, it references marriage in this sense. Uh, where is that? Uh, this would be in 2. When, when he sees Eve and he says, this is in 2, 23. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman because she was taken out of man. So that's what you're referring to. But then it says, therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the... the, the the, 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 the woman coming out of the um, out of the man's body is why then later in the future man will become man and wife because there's so you're getting back to this unity that we already saw before male and female he created them and here you're seeing that is that you are designed to be one flesh you're literally like two bodies but you're really one body. And that you see clearly in a marriage. That's why a man or a woman, they leave their parents and they join together and create this one body that you see in children. Uh, becoming one flesh. And that, and that means then, that's why they're unashamed because a man and a woman and marriage shouldn't be two private people coming together making a contract. Which we tend to have in romance. That two people are coming together making a contract that will stay together as long as we love each other. They're like negotiating and making a common a project. Well, here, what you're trying to do is you're trying to come together and be one flesh. Uh, and that's that's really where it comes from. So that's, again, that's the Aristophanes quality. That's why Aristophanes makes sense that, that there's a way that the man and woman are becoming one flesh again.
and that's but that's also why you uh, when you're married you say you're man and wife rather than Sally and Johnny because man and wife you're recapitulating this fundamental role from the very beginning you're man and woman you're man and wife this role is bigger than your personal private self it's like putting on a a mask, not a mask in the sense of fakeness, but you're putting on a role, an office. And the office is, this is where the office is established, your man and wife. Well, so if that where do you finally see that office being real? It's going to be Christ. Christ as the bridegroom and the church as his bride. When you see that in the New Jerusalem, there you see that marriage. That's the marriage feast. That's the fundamental marriage that's real in the way that all our marriages, every man and woman, is partaking in that. And that's where the word becomes one flesh and it's shareable across space and time. And here is the instantiation of it at the beginning, but then that will be the future of it.